Excellent. Episode four, if you remember, we left off with Hi and Rabbi's father teaching them a very important lesson. And he used a Bengal tiger and a goat to make that point. So episode four is um, going to cover chapters nine to 16. And let me tell you, part one of Life of Pi by Jan Martel is 36 chapters. As you recall, the whole book is 100 chapters. So chapters nine to 16 continues on about animals and the zoo and zoology and human interactions. Um, at a couple of points, there's italics kind of giving the backstory, and we um, get to know um, this important character more and more. More on that ahead. And then Pai proclaims his um, religion as Hindu um, in India, and he starts really this uh, study and exploration of three world religions. So listen carefully, hang in there, it's it's good. And um, we're doing a great job listening to Life of Pi. Enjoy. As, as you recall in um, chapter eight, it ended with the lesson learned that father gave to Pi and Ravi with the Bengal tiger and the goat. Chapter nine. Getting animals used to the presence of humans is at the heart of the art and science of zookeeping. The key aim is to diminish an animal's flight distance, which is the minimum distance at which an animal wants to keep a perceived enemy. A flamingo in the wild won't mind you if you stay more than 300 yards away. Cross that limit and it becomes tense. Get even closer and you trigger a flight reaction from which the bird will not cease until the 300 yard limit is set again or until heart and lungs fail. Different animals have different flight distances and they gauge them in different ways. Cats look, deer listen, bears smell. Giraffes will allow you to come within 30 yards of them if you are in a motor car, but will run if you're 150 yards away on foot. Fiddler crabs scurry when you're 10 yards away. Howler monkeys stir in their branches when you're at 20. African buffaloes react at 75. Well, our tools for diminishing flight distance are the knowledge we have of an animal, the food and shelter we provide, the protection we afford. And when it works, the result is an emotionally stable, stress-free wild animal that not only stays put, but is healthy lives a very long time, eats without fuss, behaves and socializes in a natural way, and the best sign, reproduces. I won't say that our zoo compared to the zoos of San Diego or Toronto or Berlin or Singapore. I won't compare to them, but you can't keep a good zookeeper down. My father was a natural. He made up for the lack of formal training with an intuitive gift and a very keen eye. He had a knack for looking and an animal and guessing what was on its mind. He was attentive to his charges and they in return multiplied, multiplied some to excess. Chapter 10, yet there will always be animals that seek to escape from zoos. Animals that are kept in unsuitable enclosures are the most obvious examples. 
every animal has particular habitat needs that must be met. If its enclosure is too sunny or too wet or too empty, if its perch is too high or too exposed, if the ground is too sandy, if there are too few branches to make a nest, if the food trough is too low, if there is not enough mud to wallow in, and so many other ifs, well then the animal will not be at peace. And it is not much of a question of constructing an imitation of conditions in the wild as it is of getting to the essence of those conditions. Everything in an enclosure must be just right. In other words, within the limits of the animal's capacity to adapt. A plague upon bad zoos with bad enclosures happens. They bring all zoos into disrepute. Wild animals that are captured when they're fully mature are another example of escape-prone animals. Often they are too sit in their ways to reconstruct their subjective worlds and adapt to a new environment. But even animals that were bred in zoos and have never known the wild, that are perfectly adapted to their enclosures and feel no tension in the presence of humans, will have moments of excitement that push them to seek to escape. All living things contain a measure of madness that moves them in strange, sometimes inexplicable ways. This madness can be saving. It is part and parcel of the ability to adapt. Without it, no species would survive. Whatever the reason for wanting to escape, sane or insane, zoo detractors should realize that animals don't escape to somewhere, but they escape from something. Something within their territory has frightened them. The intrusion of an enemy, the assault of a dominant animal, a startling noise, and it set off a flight reaction. The animal flees or tries to. I was surprised to read at the Toronto Zoo, a very fine zoo, I might add, the leopards can jump 18 feet straight up. Well, our leopard enclosure in Pondicherry had a wall 16 feet high at the back. I surmised, surmised that Rosie and Copycat never jumped out, not because of constitu constitutional weakness, but simply because they had no reason to. Animals that escape go from known into the unknown. And if there's one thing an animal hates above all else, it's the unknown. Escaping animals usually hide in the first place they find that gives them a sense of security, and they are dangerous only to those who happen to get between them and their reckoned safe spot. Chapter 11. Consider the case of the female black leopard that escaped from the Zurich Zoo in the winter of 1933. She was new to the zoo and seemed to get along with the male leopard, but various paw injuries hinted at matrimonial strife. Before any decision could be taken about what to do, she squeezed through the break in the roof bars of her cage and vanished in the night. The discovery that a wild carnivore was free in their midst created an uproar among the citizens of Zurich. Traps were set, hunting dogs were let loose. They only rid the canton of its few half-wild dogs. Not a trace of the leopard was found for 10 weeks. Finally, a casual laborer came upon it under a barn 25 miles away and shot it. Remains of roe deer were found nearby. That a big black tropical cat managed to survive for more than two months in a Swiss winter without being seen by anyone, let alone attacking anyone, speaks plainly to the fact that escaped zoo animals are not dangerous, absconding criminals, 
but simply wild creatures seeking to fit in. And this case is just one among many. If you took the city of Tokyo and you turned it upside down and you shook it out, you would be amazed at the animals that would fall out. It would pour more than cats and dogs, I tell you. Boa constrictors, Komodo dragons, crocodiles, piranhas, ostriches, wolves, lynx, wallabies, manatees, porcupines, orangutans, wild boar. Well, that's the sort of rainfall you could expect on your umbrella. And they expected to find, ha, huh, in the middle of a Mexican tropical jungle. Imagine, ha, ha, it's laughable. It's simply laughable. What were they thinking? Chapter 12. Listen carefully to the beautiful literary devices. And um, this one is in italics. At times he gets agitated. It's nothing I say. I say very little. It's his own story that does it. Memory is an ocean and he bobs on its surface. I worry that he'll want to stop, but he wants to tell me his story. He goes on, after all these years, Richard Parker still preys on his mind. He's a sweet man. Every time I visit, he prepares a South Indian vegetarian feast. I told him I like spicy food. I don't know why. I said such a stupid thing, but it's a complete lie. I add a dollop of yogurt after dollop of yogurt. Nothing doing. Each time it's the same. My taste buds shrivel up and die. My skin gets beet red. My eyes well up with tears. My head feels like a house on fire, and my digestive tract starts to twist and groin and groan in agony like a boa constructor that has swallowed a lawnmower. Chapter 13. So uh, you see, if you fall into a lion's pit, the reason the lion will tear you to pieces is not because it's hungry. Be assured, zoo animals are amply fed or because it's bloodthirsty, but it's because you invaded their territory. As an aside, that is why the circus trainer must always enter the lion ring first and in full sight of the lions. In doing so, he establishes that the ring is his territory, not theirs. The notion that he reinforces by shouting, by stomping about, by snapping his whip. The lions are impressed. Their disadvantage weighs heavily on them. Notice how they come in, mighty predators. Though they are the king of beasts, they crawl in with their tails low and they keep the edge of the ring. They keep to the edges of the ring, which is always round. Why is it round? So there's nowhere for them to hide. They are in the presence of a strongly dominant male, a super alpha male, and they must submit to his dominance rituals. So they open their jaws wide. They sit up, they jump through paper covered hoops, they crawl through tubes, they walk backwards, they roll over. Well, he's a queer one, they think dimly. Never seen a top lion like that. But he runs a good pride. The larder's always full. And let's be honest, mates, his antics keep us busy. Well, napping all the time does get a bit boring. But at least we're not riding bicycles like the brown bears or catching flying plates like the chimps. Only the trainer better make sure he always remains a super alpha. He will pay dearly if he unwittingly slips to beta. Much hostile and aggressive behavior among animals is the, is the expression of social insecurity. The animal in front of you must know where it stands, whether above you or below you. 
Social rank is central to how it leads its life. Rank determines whom it can associate with and how, where, and when it can eat, <clears throat> where it can rest, where it can drink, and so on. Until it knows its rank for certain, the animal lives a life of unbearable anarchy. It remains nervous, jumpy, dangerous, and luckily for the circus trainer, decisions about social rank among higher animals are not always based on brute force. A, a zoologist says that when two creatures meet, the one that is able to intimidate its opponent is recognized as socially superior, so that a social decision does not always depend on a fight. An encounter in some circumstances may be enough. Words of a, wild, a wise animal man. There is a Mr. Hedger who was for many years a zoo director, first of the Basel Zoo and then of the Zurich Zoo. He was a man well-versed in the way of animals. He says it's a question of brain over brawn. The nature of the circus trainer's ascendery is psychological. Foreign surroundings, the trainer's erect posture, the calm demeanor, steady gaze, fearless step forward, strange roar, for example, the snapping of a whip or the blowing of a whistle. These are some factors that will fill the animal's mind with doubt and fear and make clear to it where it stands. The very thing it wants to know. Satisfied. Number two will be back now down and number one can turn to the audience and shout, let the show go on. And now, ladies and gentlemen, through hoops of real fire. Chapter 14. It is interesting to know that the lion and note the lion is the most amenable so the circus trainer's tricks is the one with the lowest social standing in the pride, the omega animal. It has the most to gain from a close relationship with super alpha trainer. It is not only a matter of extra treats, a close relationship will also mean protection from the other members of the pride. It is this compliant animal to the public no different from the others in size and apparent ferocity that will be the star of the show. While the trainer leaves the beta and gamma lions, more cantankerous subordinates sitting on their colorful barrels on the edge of the ring. Well, the same is true of other circus animals and is also seen in zoos. Socially inferior animals are the ones that make the most strenuous, resourceful efforts to get to know their keepers. They prove to be the ones most faith faithful to them most in need of their company and least likely to challenge them or be difficult. The phenomena has been observed with big cats, with bison, deer, wild sheep, monkeys, and many other animals. It is a fact commonly known in the animal trade. Chapter 15, listen carefully, introduction to religion. This is in italics. His house is a temple. In the entrance hall hangs a framed picture of Ganesha, he of the elephant head. He sits facing out, rosy-colored, pot-bellied, crowned and smiling, three hands holding various objects. The fourth held palm out in a blessing and in a greeting. He is the Lord overcomer of obstacles, the God of good luck, the God of wisdom, the patron of learning. Simpatico in the highest. He brings a smile to my lips. 
at his feet is an attentive rat, his vehicle. Because when Lord Ganesha travels, he travels atop a rat. On the wall opposite is a picture, and just get it in your mind, it's just a plain wooden cross. In the living room, on a table next to the sofa, there's a small frame picture of Virgin Mary of Guadalupe, flowers tumbling from her open mantle. Next to it is a framed photo of black-robed Gaba, holiest sanctum of Islam, surrounded by 10,000 swirls of the faithful. On the television set is a brass statue of Shiva as Nataraja, the cosmic lord of the dance who controls the motion of the universe and the flow of time. He dances on the demon of ignorance, his four hands held out to the choreographic gesture, one foot on the demon's back, the other lifted in the air. When not Charaja brings his foot down, they say, time will stop. There's a shrine in the kitchen. It's set up in the cupboard with a door. He has replaced it with a fretwork arch. The arch partly hides the yellow light bulb that in the evening lights up the shrine. Two pictures rest behind a small altar to the side. Ganesha again, and in the center, in a large frame, smiling and blue-skinned, is Krishna, playing the flute. Both have smears of red and yellow powder on the glass over their foreheads, and in a copper dish on the altar are three silver murtis, representations. He identifies them for me with a pointed finger. Lakshmi, Shakti, the mother goddess, in the form of Pavrati, and Krishna, this time is playful, a playful baby crawling on all fours. In between the goddess is a stone Shiva, Yonilinga, who looks like a half, an avocado, with a stump rising from the middle, a Hindu symbol represent, representing male and female energies of the universe. To one side of the dish is a small conch shell set on a pedestal. To the other, a small silver handbell. Grains of rice lie about, as well as a flower or two just beginning to wilt. Many of these items are anointed with dabs of yellow and red. On the shelf below are various articles, a beaker full of water, a copper spoon, a lamp with a wicked coil in oil, sticks of incense and small bowls full of red powder, yellow powder, grains of rice, and lumps of sugar. There's another Virgin Mary in the dining room. Upstairs in his office, there is a brass Ganesha sitting cross-legged next to the computer. There is a wooden Christ on the cross from Brazil on a wall and a green prayer rug in the corner. The Christ is expressive. He suffers. The prayer rug lies in its own clear space. Next to it on the low bookstand is a book covered by a cloth. At the center of the cloth, cloth is a single Arabic word, intricately woven four letters, and a leaf two lambs in a ha, the word God in Arabic. The book on the bedside table is a Bible. Chapter 16. We are all born like Catholics, aren't we? A little bit in limbo without religion until some figures introduce us to God. After the meeting of the matter ends for most of us, after that, if there is a change, it's usually for the lesser rather than the greater. Many people seem to lose God along life's way. Well, that was not my case. The figure in question for me was an older sister of mothers of a more traditional mind who brought me to the temple when I was a small boy. 
Auntie Rohini was delighted to meet her newborn nephew, and she thought she would include Mother Goddess in the delight. It will be his symbolic first outing, she said. It's a samskra, symbolic indeed. We were in Madura. I was the fresh veteran of a seven-hour train journey. No matter, off we went on this Hindu rite of passage, mother carrying me, auntie propelling her. I have no conscious memory of this first go-round in a temple, but some of the smells of incense, some of the play of light and shadow, some flame and some burst of color, something of a sultriness and the mystery of the place must have somehow stayed with me. A germ of a religious exaltation, no bigger than a mustard seed, was sown in me long ago and left to germinate. And it has never stopped growing since that day. I am a Hindu because of sculpted cones of red kumkum powder and baskets of yellow turmeric nuggets, because of garlands of flowers and pieces of broken coconut, because of the clanging of bells to announce one's arrival to God, because of the whine of the reedy nostrodam and the beating of the drums, because of the patter of bare feet against stone floors, down dark corridors, pierced by shafts of sunlight, because of the fragrance of incense, because of the flames of arati lamps circling in the darkness, because of the bahans being sweetly sung, because of the elephants standing around to bless, because of the colorful murals telling colorful stories, because of the foreheads carrying variously signified the same word, faith. I became loyal to these sense impressions, whoopsie, to these sense impressions, even before I knew what they meant or what they were or what they were for. It's my heart that commands me snow. I feel at home in a Hindu temple and I'm aware of presence, not personal the way we usually feel presence, but something larger. My heart still skips a beat when I catch sight of a murti of God residing in the inner sanctum of a temple. Truly, I am in a sacred cosmic womb, a place where everything is born, and it is my sweet luck to behold its living core. My hands naturally come together in reverent worship. I hunger for frazid that that sugary offering to God that comes back to us as a sanctified treat. My, saw, my palms need to feel the heat of a hallowed flame whose blessing I bring to my eyes and forehead. But religion is more than a rite and a ritual. There is what the rite and the ritual stand for. Here too, I am a Hindu. The universe makes sense to me through Hindu eyes. There is Braham, the world soul, the sustaining frame upon which is woven warp and weft the cloth of being with all its decorative elements of space and time. There is Brahma Nirunda without qualities which lies beyond understanding, beyond description, beyond approach. With our poor words, we sow a suit for it. One truth, unity, absolute, ultimate reality, ground of being, and try to make it fit. But Brahma Nirunda always bursts the seams. We are left speechless. But there's also Brahma Savuna with qualities where the suit fits. Now we call it Shiva, Krishna, Shakti, Ganesha. We can approach it with some understanding. We can discern certain attributes, loving, merciful, frightening, but we feel the gentle pull of relationships. Brahman Saguna is Brahman made manifest to our limited senses. 
Brahman express, expressed not only in gods, but in humans, in animals, in trees, in a handful of earth, for everything has a trace of the divine in it. The truth of life is the Brahman is no different from Atman. The spiritual force within us, what you might call the soul, the individual soul touches upon the world. Soul, like a well, reaches for the water table, that which sustains the universe beyond thought and language, and that which is at the core of struggles for expression is the same thing. The finite within the infinite, the infinite within the finite. If you ask me how Brahman and Atman relate precisely, I would say in the way, well, the same way that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate, mysteriously. But one thing is clear, Atman seeks to realize Brahman, to be united with Absolute, and it travels in the life on a pilgrimage where it is born and dies, and is born again, and dies again, and again, until it manages to shed the sheaths that imprison it here below. The paths to liberation are numerous, but the bank along the way is always the same. The bank of karma, where the liberation account of each of us is credited or debited, depending on our actions. This, in a holy nutshell, is Hinduism. And I have been a Hindu my whole life. With its notion in mind, I see my place in the universe. But we should not claim a plague upon fundamentalists and literalists. I am reminded of a story of Lord Krishna when he was a cow herder. Every night he invites the milkmaid, milk, milk mags, trying again. Every night he invites the milkmaids to dance with him in the forest. They come and they dance. The night is dark. The fire in their midst roars and it crackles. The beat of the music gets ever faster. The girls dance and dance and dance with their sweet Lord who has made himself as abundant to be in the arms of each of every girl. But, but the moment the girls become possessive, the moment each one imagines that Krishna is her partner alone, he vanishes. So it is that we should not ever be jealous with God. I know a woman here in Toronto who is very dear to my heart. She was my foster mother. I call her Auntie G, and she likes that. She's Quebecan. Though she has lived in Toronto for over 30 years, her French-speaking mind still slips on occasion on the understanding of English sounds. And so when she first heard of Hare Krishna, she didn't hear it right. She heard hairless Christians, and that is what they were to her for many years. When I corrected her, I told her that, in fact, she was wrong, that Hindu is in their capacity for love are indeed um, are indeed hairless Christians, just as Muslims, in the way they see God in everything, are bearded Hindus. And Christians, in their devotion to God, are hat-wearing Muslims. Chapter 17. I think it's too long. I'm going to save it for episode um, 5. Until then...